What is going on, everyone? Uh, welcome to the Welcome to Hope podcast. Uh, this is Rich Killen, uh, and I am joined by the one and only Sam Lample. Hey, everybody. Uh, today, we are going to talk about, talk a little bit about emotions. Um, you know, we, we started this week a uh, IOP program for adolescents, and one of the topics of conversation that has come up a lot is, is this topic of emotions, and it's really reminded me of how, as a society, we really do a terrible job of, um, of explaining emotions and learning what to do with them and how to communicate them and things of that nature. And so we wanted to, to do a podcast and, and talk about emotions and, and what to do with them and how to talk about them and things of that nature. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, I think the term I use a lot and I, I actually have heard it more, uh, in, um, mainstream media lately is, uh, emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. I also talk about having uh, be, becoming emotionally literate and, um, what I'm specifically referring to there with, with various, uh, folks is the idea that we don't have words for feelings or feelings words often we'll use language like fine or good. Okay. Or, we'll, or when people ask us how we feel, we'll, we'll respond with more physiological states like I'm tired um, or I'm fatigued, mm -hmm. uh, I'm stressed, without necessarily uh, directly and specifically identifying an emotion. And, you know, the, it's relatively easy fix in a sense, um, easy to understand, not easy to do. Uh, but one of the ways you develop an emotional language or increase your emotional IQ is to start using feelings words uh, to specifically articulate what you are actually experiencing in the moment. Right. Right. And it'd be great if, you know, they taught a class on these kinds of things <laughs> right. in school or something like that, or uh, specifically some of the conversations I've had with some of the individuals in our IOP program about, um, in dealing with parents and even their parents not knowing how to talk about emotions or even feeling uncomfortable with said emotions. Um, you know, and I think one emotion in particular that is, is difficult is that of anger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they say that anger is a secondary emotion. Um, but I, I'm also not quite sure that people really fully understand what that means. Mm. Yeah. So in, in school, uh, the way, uh, actually in, in therapy offices, probably around the country, the way that, um, anger is, um, often represented, uh, you know, in a drawing as a secondary emotion is the use of a, an iceberg. And then the idea is that uh, most people know that, uh, the tip of the iceberg is about 10% of the total mass of the iceberg and the other 90% is below the surface of the water. So generally we're taught that when a person displays anger, chances are there are one or more uh, emotions under the surface that are really fueling that anger. 
And you can see that, and there's a lot of truth to that. You can see that a lot of times when a, a person might be feeling guilt or shame when they're confronted about an issue and their immediate response is an anger response. Right. You know, and what's going on there is that anger is being used as a way to push people away from that vulnerable place of shame and guilt, you know, that the person doesn't want to give someone else access to. Mm. So that's a great example of how uh, anger can be a secondary emotion. The, the thing that's often forgotten, though, is that anger can also be a primary emotion. Mm. It doesn't have to be secondary. Um, and, and, and I think a lot of times that's news to people is that, you know, it is it is quite possible that anger is the only emotion that you're experiencing in a given situation and that um, anger fits. And I'll, I'll even go so far as to say sometimes anger is constructive. Sure. Yeah. And we might need to be angry. Uh, but I'll tell you that, you know, saying that is oftentimes met with a lot of skepticism. Right. What are your thoughts on that, Rich? I, I think about, I guess what I would call sort of a righteous anger. Hmm. Um, when, when we're talking about feeling like things are feeling like you've been slighted or feeling like things have been unjust, hmm. um, as opposed to feeling like, you know, maybe somebody hurt your feelings or uh, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think historically, like you look at like civil rights movement and, and things of that nature, a lot of that came out of this kind of righteous anger and people feeling like they were treated unjustly. Mm -hmm. And so I would think that that's probably more of that. Um, the, the productive anger or the, probably more primary primary yeah. anger, I think is what you refer to it as. Yeah, no, that's actually a great example. Um, you know, I, I don't consider myself an expert on anger management. Uh, I just want everybody to know that. Uh, but at the same time, I've read a couple books on anger and have, you know, spent a lot of time over the past 20 some odd years dealing with anger in various circumstances and situations on a regular basis. And, you know, what often stands out and you see this relatively you know, being the norm is that emo uh, anger has a tendency to be connected to justice versus injustice, like you're talking right. about. Right. But it also has a tendency to, to be connected to thoughts about fairness versus unfairness. Mm. And there, there's a huge separation between these two core belief systems in that, you know, if if a person, especially as an as an adult is expecting life to be fair. Right. Then they have a tendency to have a bias towards weighing everything in terms of whether it was fair to them or not fair to them. Problem with that is that life is too complex for things to be fair all the time. Yeah. And we probably should have learned in early childhood that life indeed is not fair. So if you're walking around as a person who believes life owes you something, uh, oftentimes you will experience anger uh, because you'll have a consistent experience of, of life being unfair towards you. Right. The problem is that anger often comes across as more immature, more self-centered, mm -hmm. and I think more destructive because of that. Right. And that's where people would say, 
you know, they look at anger and say, no, that's a negative emotion. I don't want anything to do with that. And, you know, that's, that's only one aspect of anger that, that is unfortunately destructive, Mm -hmm. but there's a completely different aspect of anger that is, I would say almost necessary. And that's that concept of anger that comes from a place of justice versus injustice or whether there's a moral wrong that has taken place or someone has trampled our boundaries or our needs are being interfered with to where we want to be able to pull anger off of our tool belt, just like we would pull a hammer off of a tool belt if it was the right tool for the given situation. And sometimes anger is the right tool. Right. You know, sometimes we need anger to energize ourselves. We need anger to act. Sometimes we need anger to defend ourselves or someone else. Sometimes we need anger to give us enough uh, motivation to use our voice uh, to stand up against something that is wrong. Um, Whether it's it's whether we've been wronged or someone else has been wronged. And here's a totally interesting tidbit and side note to all this, Rich. Um, I was having a discussion about some eating disorder dynamics with a colleague lately, and they were asking some questions about, you know, why is it that an eating disordered individual could, you know, would really struggle to protect their own boundaries, but would go out of their way to protect the boundaries of someone else. Hmm. And this is often referred to as a justice orientation. Okay. And I think that word's very telling because of the focus on justice versus injustice and how some of these folks are using anger about another person's situation to advocate for that person, but because they don't believe they're worthy to self advocate, they would never use anger as a way to protect themselves. Interesting. Yeah. Very, very interesting dynamic in the eating disorder world, justice orientation. I like that. I like that. So when it when it's about fairness versus unfairness, that's where the the anger is more of a secondary emotion. But when it's justice versus injustice, that's where it's primary. Yeah, that's I think that's a good way to generalize it. Now, simplified version. Exactly. There's you have to keep in mind we talk in psychological concepts are often taught in generalities. Right. There are almost always exceptions to every rule. Sure. Yeah. Um, certainly, you know, we don't want people to, to feel like we're telling you how you feel or how you should feel. This is more just an opportunity to have an education base so you can examine your behaviors and, and determine for yourself if your anger comes more from life treating you unfairly or does it come more from um, seeing people's uh, rights trampled. Right. Yeah. So where, what do we, what do we do with the anger when we are experiencing it? I know you said you're not a anger management expert. Yes. But what, what is the best way to either, uh, to either communicate that or to find an outlet for it? Yeah. So I think this is a great question. People talk about this, you know, should I go hit the pillow? Should I scream into the pillow? Should right. I rip up a phone book? Should I throw rocks? Should I throw ice? Should mm-hmm. I throw anything? Should I buy a heavy punching bag for the garage? I mean, 
my understanding is, is that for some people that will work, but for other people doing those sort of aggressive actions actually makes their anger more intense. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so, you know, we can't categorically say that you, you know, you should try those things because they might not work for you. Uh, the, the one basic approach to dealing with emotion that seems to me is the most successful is actually just talking about it. So in other words, we could say, oh, I'm so angry right now, as opposed to punching a hole in the drywall. Right. You know, and, right. and, and some people might be like, well, that's not very satisfying. Just me saying I'm so angry right now. But if we're talking about how to appropriately express emotion to make sure that all emotion can be experienced with without having it negatively labeled. The best way to deal with any of it is to put words to it. You know, I'm I'm angry about this. You know, this is happening in my life, or I'm angry and I see this happening in someone else's life. Um, ultimately, that's the best way to externalize and kind of decompress the intensity around a person's anger. Right. Um, it's not like physical activity doesn't help. Right running weightlifting you know even pushing like th this works really well too and some people are really angry if you go and just kind of like push against an, an immovable object like a door frame or a wall or something like that mm -hmm. if you push long enough to exhaust your muscles you're automatically going to calm down okay. yeah it's just like a short little thing you can use in the moment but ultimately i find What's happened with folks is that they either try to pretend that they don't have an angry part to them, or they tell themselves that they can't control their anger, so it doesn't matter what I do in my anger anyway. Right. You right. Know, a lot of people get so angry, they can't even remember their actions. Yeah. You know, and they feel almost like, well, it's sort of an excuse to get off the hook or like I don't want to be responsible responsible for something that I can't remember doing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And of course that would be an example of an injustice. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and what about, I know I've had uh, over the years, especially when I was younger, where I would feel angry, but not even know why I'm angry. Yeah. I just could tell that like, I'm angry about something, but I have no idea what I'm angry about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a there's almost a bigger issue there in terms of the emotional identification as a whole. But I think the way that we, you know, a good way to start being able to tease out why I'm angry is using these concepts of, of injustice or right versus wrong versus unfairness. You know, the unfairness is that did I get what I want? Did I get my right. way? You know, mm -hmm. right versus wrong is is more of a, a sort of a, a moral type, uh, humanity type issue. Right. Um, so that's where you could start. You know, another way to get some feedback on what I might be angry about is to um, ask a trusted someone in your life. You know, hey, are you noticing any change in my mood? Do I feel more angry to you? That sort of thing. But I'm going to throw you a, a little bit of a curveball here, Rich. One of the places I go almost right off the bat when it comes to anger in a clinical or therapeutic setting mm -hmm. is the grief process. Hmm. And that's what a lot of people say. They're like, hmm, never thought about that before. Yeah. And but I would, you know, I would encourage you to think about this. You know, we experience grief every time there's a loss. Right. We experience loss every time there's a change. 
Right. How often do changes occur in our lives? Some of them are small changes. Right. Some of them are huge changes. Right. And, you know, so what I'm suggesting is, is that we're going through a grieving process more often than we probably think about or acknowledge. It's true. Yeah. And then part of that grieving process is actually anger. And so it's like one of the things I see, I've seen a lot over the years is people get stuck in their grief because they try to not feel any anger, try to avoid it at all costs, Mm -hmm. go right to a sadness phase or go right to an acceptance phase, but ultimately realize that hopefully at least they realize that by not doing the anger work, they're still actually stuck in the, in the uh, grief process. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So there is that relationship between anger and loss, anger and sadness, anger and acceptance. Uh, so that kind of speaks to the idea that we need to be better equipped and more well-versed to deal with anger because it's, it shows up in a lot more places than we would imagine. So it sounds like part of the process in dealing with anger is not only putting words to it, but also kind of exploring and trying to understand why am I feeling this way? Yes. Why do I feel angry? Exactly. It's the... Um, you know, somebody somebody told me one time is really interesting concept, and I really wish I knew who this was because I'd give them credit for it. <laughs> what they said, you know, a lot of times kids will have friends that their parents don't like, right? Mm-hmm. And so their parents will say, "Look, I don't want you hanging out with that kid." Right. And what do you think the child's going to do? Hang out with that. They're kid. They're going to hang out with that kid, right? So, what's the better strategy? Better strategy is invite that kid over for lunch. Right. Right. So you as a parent can get to see what it is that is attractive to your child about Mm. that individual. Yeah. You know? Right. So uh, our our good friend Ted Lasso refers to it as being curious as opposed to being judgmental. Right. We can be the exact same thing with our anger and our other feelings. And so in other words, instead of being uncomfortable because I'm feeling something and then trying to push it away, which doesn't work, by the way. Maybe we need to say, I'm uncomfortable, but I need to be curious about this. And so instead of turning our back on our feelings, what if we actually turned our gaze onto our feelings? Yeah. And we're able to sit with them for a while and start to kind of understand them on a deeper level of like, oh, I see. This is why I'm feeling this way. Because another thing that's often met or overlooked when it comes to emotions is the idea that that our feelings, our emotions are connected to our needs. If our, if our needs are met, then we have a tendency to feel more what people would call positive feelings like peace or contentment or joy, something like that. Right. When our needs are not being met, you know, then, then we're sort of suspect to emotional vulnerabilities. We could easily get hurt or something like that. Um, and if you don't recognize that that's a primary function of emotional identification, then we often live in a needs deficit mm. uh, without even knowing it. Right, right. That, that reminds me of another conversation I've had frequently with some of these uh, individuals in our IOP, especially the teenagers, where, you know, they may feel angry or sad or, or any host of emotions. And yet the parents are often talking about, well, you should be grateful. 
because you have this, you have that. You've got a roof over your head. You have, we buy you anything you want. Yeah. Um, as if because of that, they shouldn't have any sort of negative emotions, including anger. Yeah. Um, but there's a, there's a deeper sort of need there, not a basic need that's missing. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of takes us back to the discussion we had about invalidation a couple of weeks yeah. ago. Right. Right. You know, if you if if the audience remembers um, the second message of invalidating environment is that appropriate emotion is punished or ignored, mm -hmm. and you know a lot of times you'll see that in in any sort of system that <coughs> says, "Hey, it's it's okay if you feel happy, joyful, you know, something that brightens the room." Like right. we love that, but anything other than that um, is an is an inconvenience and. You need to take that, deal with it yourself. So if we give children the message or, or even adults the message that they should be grateful all the time, um, it really invalidates their personal experience with life. Mm -hmm. And again, it, it calls for us to be more curious about why the child might feel that way or a loved one might feel that way or a spouse might feel that way as, opposing, as opposed to telling them to simply stop feeling that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is why emotions are so tricky. Well, yeah, here's another curveball too. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, we talk about emotions like they're these great things and they really are. But then at the same time, just because you feel something doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. Right. Yeah. Right. So you have the possibility to have emotions that are real from the standpoint of that you're actually experiencing them, but they're also rooted in an incorrect belief. Right. And so here's an example of that, you know, for the listeners at home, they might be saying, well, what does that actually look like? It is. Here's a real simple illustration. Like I could be, let's say I don't like spiders and I kind of don't like spiders. Um, I don't like snakes either. Or lots of animals that are gross. <laughs> um, but if, you know, if I'm really phobic of, of spiders, which I'm not, but if I was, I might look out of the corner of my eye in this uh, room where we're recording this. And I could see something move in the corner. Right. right? Mm -hmm. Now, I might make a false attribution that that's a spider, which would cause me to feel anxiety. It might cause me to feel fear. Right. You know? um, and then you have to ask yourself the question, well, you know, is my fear and anxiety real? Yes, it absolutely is. Mm -hmm. But do I need to be feeling it for fear of a spider over there? And the answer is no, because it's not really a spider. It's just some dust. Right. You know? Right. So you have to see the situation where my feelings are real. Absolutely. But they're based on a false assumption or an incorrect belief. Mm -hmm. And therefore we can't necessarily buy into them all the time. Right. And, and that's, and the same thing with thoughts to a degree as well, you know? So this is one of the traps is that we want to teach everyone to take their thoughts and feelings more seriously, but not too seriously. Right. There's a, there's a balance there. Not, identify too closely with them exactly but be curious about it and not um i don't know internalize i don't know if that's the right yeah. word but it's not internalized not be it, like let's not become confused with it let's not or excuse me fused with it let's not personalize our thoughts and feelings right yep. let's not them you know let's let not them be, let them become the glasses that we see life through our thoughts and feelings are important but they're only small aspects of our entire existence right. as a human being. Right. Yeah. Right.
Yes. And our, our emotions come from our thoughts. Yeah. And our thoughts can be so random and we don't have that much control over what is going in and out of our heads half the time. Exactly. Yeah. And if, if our thoughts contribute to our emotions and our thoughts are random, then we can't always rely on our emotions. Totally. Yeah. All that's happening. Like an emotion is sort of experience or a feeling. We use those words interchangeably, although they're technically not uh, synonymous with Mm -hmm. each other, but close enough. Uh, But yeah, you know, we have feelings based on millisecond processing of external information that comes to the uh, awareness of our brain. So right. it happens so fast, we don't even know it's happening. Right. But once we become aware of these thoughts and feelings, then it's our responsibility to do something with them mm-hmm. rather than just allow them to sort of puppet us around, you know, in, yeah. in life. Yeah. Yeah. I, as I said before, this is why emotions are, are, are so complicated. Yes. There's, there's, there's just so much that goes into it. Um, but yet it's such a very real and sometimes very powerful experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's very important for us to all be able to, to, to know how to manage these emotions and know how to interact with them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, we can, we, we haven't even discussed, I mean, here, here's, I guess here's a tease for a future uh, podcast. We haven't even discussed the idea of, what needs are specifically connected to feelings. Like, right. you know, I mentioned that, but we, we're not going to have time to dive into that today. Yeah. And, you know, there's also the idea of like, well, can certain feelings have a positive aspect to them and a negative aspect to them? And the answer is absolutely. Yep. You know, guilt would be a, a great example of that. Mm-hmm. So, we'll, you know, we'll have follow-up discussions on emotional literacy and, and looking at different functionality of uh, feelings um, but the main thing I think I want people to, to take away from this would be that we, you know, we don't get better in life by avoiding or going around our feelings. We feel better in life when we become better at feeling. Right. That's, that's how that process works. We have to go through our feels. As a lot of people will say, they'll encourage you to feel your feels, you know, because that's actually how you heal from something as opposed to walking around it. Just a little tidbit to leave you with there. I, I heard a great uh, analogy or metaphor. I get those two confused all the time. <laughs> but it, it's the difference between a bison and a cow. Oh, okay. This ought to be good. Yeah. When a both, of, both a bison and a cow are very good at anticipating when a storm is coming. Hmm. The difference between the two is a cow will turn and go in the opposite direction, whereas the bison will walk towards it oh my and so inevitably the bison ends up getting through the storm faster than mm. the cow because the cow's going to get tired and end up stopping anyway and the storm's going to end up catching up to them so now they're tired and exhausted from escaping it and yet they're still going to have to experience the storm huh. whereas the bison's already been through it <laughs> that's fantastic where do you come up with that uh <laughs> Believe it or not, I think I found that one on social media somewhere. Love it. <laughs> Love it. And that's why you should re- listen to podcasts. There you go. There you go. 
Hey, can I take before we wrap up, Rich? Yeah. Just kind of take a minute to uh, remind people um, that we do have our intensive outpatient programs uh, running, our adult eating disorder program, our adult mood and anxiety program. And this week we just launched our uh, adolescent and family program, uh, which is already um, starting to pay positive dividends because I've been speaking with some of the parents and some of the kids and they're they're hearing their children talk about these concepts that we're talking about. It's awesome. And uh, which in bringing this brand new emotional language into these family systems. And I guess let me close with this. Here's a, here's another reason why having emotional language is so important. If, if you communicate to, to let's put it in the, in the, in the context of a parent child relationship, if a parent's good at communicating their love for their child to their child, that child will never question whether they're loved by mom or dad. Mm-hmm. But if mom and dad can't use that language because they don't know how to, or they're not comfortable with it, or they've never learned to, then that child does not definitely know that they're loved. Right. And that, that confusion right there leads to issues with self-esteem issues with self-confidence peer issues behaviorally acting out the list just goes on and on and on uh just one more reason that it's so vital uh to start to start using feelings words yeah 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 well that's great stuff um stay tuned as we'll have more episodes uh coming uh next week and as always, if if you know anybody that might benefit from this, please share this with them uh, because we are here to uh, help provide hope. The content in this program is not intended to be a substitute for professional counseling, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified mental health provider with any questions you may have. Never disregard professional advice or delay seeking counseling because of something you have heard on this podcast. If you or someone you know is in need of counseling in the state of Arizona, feel free to call us at 602-488-6104. If you are in crisis or think you may have an emergency, please call 911 immediately. If you are in Maricopa County, Arizona and are in a behavioral health crisis, you can call the crisis hotline at one 800 631-1314. If you are outside of Maricopa County, you can call your local crisis hotline or simply dial 988 for the National Suicide Hotline. If you are outside of the United States, please call your local emergency number immediately.